So, any questions tonight? Yes. I was wondering about the holy books and how should we study them? Mm. And how should we approach them? And sometimes there is like statements in there that are like a bit hard to understand or to accept. Mm -hmm. And and, um, and I was also wondering uh, uh, which books should we study? Like I'm a beginner, so what are the most important books that I should like mm-hmm. start with? Mm-hmm. I think it was you that was telling me that in um, in the other group that you were affiliated with, they were telling you not to read the Chaitanya Charitamrita until you finish the Bhagavatam. So um, I know that uh, Prabhupada said that uh, the Chaitanya Charitamrita was the like the PhD studies or something like that. So I imagine that that's kind of what they, how they ended up with that kind of emphasis. I've heard that in other, other, uh, it's gone areas, it's gone affected areas also, that uh, emphasis. But uh, it wasn't the emphasis when Prabhupada was here, that no one should read the Chaitanya Charitamrita until reading the Bhagavatam. And I mentioned to somebody the other day, I don't know who it was, that, that, because he read the Chaitanya Charitamrita, Bhaktivinotaku could appreciate the Bhagavatam. Without having read that, he didn't, he didn't have an appreciation of the Bhagavatam. Of course, it had a bad reputation at the time, I guess. So anyway, there's no bar against reading the Chaitanya Charitamrita. I wanted to make that clear. At the same time, it's, it's not really a, a beginning book either, as Prabhupada indicated. It, it has very high philosophy in there, especially in certain chapters, like the fourth chapter of the Adi Leela, and, um, and then sections of the Anti Leela also. Bhakti Siddhanta Sarsati Thakur did em- emphasize more the Chaitanya Bhagavat for general reading than the Chaitanya Charitamrita. Um, but I think given that the times that we're living in and the, and the circumstances the state, I should say, of the Gaudiya international community amongst its different sects, that it's important for you to read the Chaitanya Charitamrita and try to assimilate the the theory and where it's going and, and so forth. And, of course, the more you can... Another way of looking at that is, is as, I've, as I've mentioned here during this visit, that our way to Krishna is through Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, so we certainly can't put him at the, at the end. He has to be at the beginning. So, you should read the Chaitanya Charitamrita. And it's easier to read than the Bhagavatam. It's shorter, easier to get a grip on also. The Bhagavatam is stories within stories within stories, questions and answers to take you to stories that have questions and answers that take you. And you can get a little lost sometimes. And you get a little lost, especially with the way in which Prabhupada wrote his commentary, in fact, on all of his books, in that you can lose kind of track of the thread of what's going on, because each of his purports kind of is a work unto itself, largely, rather than 
showing the connection between the verses and chapters and so forth in his commentary. He didn't he didn't do that. It's not a fault or anything. He just did it in a particular way. And so it is good, helpful to to when reading to kind of get a grip on on the text and what's being said where and why and what chapter and so forth. Chaitanya Charitamrita would be probably a little easier to do that with than the Bhagavatam, but it should be done with the Bhagavatam as well. And the Gita. I've written my commentary on the Gita. Among other things, it it does emphasize that to show the the connection between the verses and chapters and so forth. Have you read that? Yeah, so you know what I'm talking about then. So, no bar on reading the Chaitanya Charitamrita or the Bhagavatam. It should be encouraged. And the Bhagavad Gita. Bhagavad Gita is for beginners. And at the same time, it's said that everything is found in the Gita. So... And my commentary is a very Gaudiya, theistic kind of commentary that does go in the direction of, of the Prayogen and points, points in the direction of the goal of Gaudiya Vaishnavism as well. So it's kind of a, an advanced beginner's edition uh, of sorts. So I think you should study the Bhagavad Gita. Have you read the whole Bhagavad Gita? Yeah. Prabhupada's edition? Yeah. So you should read it some more. Read, read my edition some more and, and, and try to uh, get a real kind of a grip on it. And then another thing that you can do in your reading of, say, if you want to read Bhagavatam, which is a good idea, then read read a chapter, read all the verses in the chapter through without reading the purports and try to see what the chapter is saying and wh- where it's going and so forth. Then you can go back and you can read the purports like in, in Prabhupada's edition, for example, and study the points that he, he makes there. But it would be good and helpful to you if you could kind of like get a grip on the book as it is, how it works. And so, like I say, you read a chapter and you read all the uh, verses in the chapter and you kind of follow the train of thought. Like Vidur asked the question of Maitreya and uh, vice versa. And, and Maitreya starts to tell a story or Maitreya starts to tell a story and in the midst of the story, then someone else asks a question. Try to follow it like that so you don't get lost and realize what the context of things are. And then if you read in the purports, and um, Prabhupada's commenting on a particular verse, or I am commenting on a particular verse, and in the context of that comment, another verse is referred to, another book is referred to, then Another way of reading is to follow that. You read the purport, wherever the the purport points you to, you go there. If it says, and so it's mentioned in Shumad Bhagavatam in this chapter, in this verse, such and such. So then you go there. When you go when you go there, then see the verse and then see the context. What comes before it, what comes after it, how that verse is appearing there. And then you can read the commentary, for example, in Bhagavatam, if it's a Bhagavatam verse of Prabhupada's commentary, maybe there'll be a reference in there to another place. So then you go there. And then you see the context of that reference. And try to understand the reference in relation to exactly how it's being cited. And then understand the reference in the context of how it appears in the, in the actual book um, that it comes from as well. And so you make your reading kind of like a study in that way. That's a good way to read, and the book should be studied. Of course, another way to read is just to read it. And there's so much material 
So that you can also do. Um, just read it and then try to imbibe and absorb as much as you can and parts that you can't. Just kind of plow through it and go to the next. And, and you know, next time you come through it again, you'll pick up more and, and it's a cumulative effect. So that also can be done. Just read it through. But you've been doing this for a couple of years, so and you have a good mind to have read as many books as you have already. So I think you should try to have a more of a approach to studying it than just reading through the material. And um, so Bhagavad Gita is it would be very good if you could become very familiar with Bhagavad Gita. And with Chaitanya Charitamrita, if you can become familiar with the first first uh, six chapters, maybe six and seven and eight, and how they work together and so forth. That's before the narrative starts, really, of the Leela. What happens in Chaitanya Charitamrita is he, he gives an introduction, he gives 14 verses of a Mongol char, and then he explains those verses in successive chapters. And then after explaining those verses, which he's kind of like giving a greater balance of the philosophy there, then he introduces the players in the Leela. So many devotees, so many branches, this branch, that branch, this devotee, that devotee. And then the narrative begins with the birth of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. So there's two ways that you can approach the Chaitanya Charitamrita. One, which is a little heady, is to really try to familiarize yourself with the first six, seven chapters. What is it? More than that. Well, I think eight chapters. Then it begins the description of the, the different players up to maybe chapter 12. And then, then 13 begins the birth of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and so forth. So one way to read it is to really emphasize those chapters. Another way, a lighter way to read it, and, and a good way to read it also, is to start after that, and start with the birth of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and read the narrative and become familiar with the, with the life of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu in different instances and so forth, pastimes. And another way to read it for studying is to read the teachings of of uh, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu to Rupa Goswami and the teachings to Sanatana Goswami. Teachings to Rupa Goswami are one chapter, chapter 20 of the Madhya And then to Sanatana Goswami, I think there are three or four chapters. So Sanatana Siksha particularly, so much teaching is given there. You can uh, concentrate on those few chapters. And with Bhagavatam, as I say, if you take a canto, Take the first canto and try to read the verses and see how they connect and so forth and follow the, the storyline. That's, that's a good approach. And then later go back through all the purports and as I say, follow them, follow the references and so on. And then um, in Bhagavad Gita, I mentioned that, then another important book for us is the Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, which we don't have a full edition of, but the Nectar of Devotion is there. And the devotees have been going through that on the Tattva Vivek. Are you on there sometimes? Yeah, sometimes. Sometimes. So they've been, Babru, my godbrother, has been leading some type of a course on that. And it's pretty good, right? Mm-hmm. So... And that's there. It's you know it's archived. It's there, so you can go and tune into it at, at any time. But uh, any participation, if you have the time and a computer, 
in those discussions will be useful and don't be shy, you know, to think that you say something stupid or something like that. <laughs> that would be stupid if you did. If you say that would be more stupid. So the way to become educated is sometimes to make mistakes and say things that you think are dumb and sometimes you find out they're not so dumb. That's what happens to Hari Priya all the time because she's pretty smart. But... Uh, <laughs> Um, that's good. Otherwise, you know, nectar devotion is there. One of my godbrothers wrote a book called Waves of Devotion, trying to explain the nectar devotion, which is requires some explanation in some places. Uh, Prabhupada was one of the earlier books Prabhupada wrote, and, and to be honest, with like most of the books he wrote them in in a bit of a hurry. He wanted to get the books out, and he didn't know how long he would be here. He he, he didn't know if he ever. He came with the first uh, canto of Bhagavatam, and he put a lot into that in India, writing that, because he didn't know if he'd ever live long enough to write anymore. So he's going at a pretty fast pace. Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu is a really big book, and a lot to be said there. Nectar Devotion is only a summary study of it. And uh, it suffers somewhat uh, from editing problems and perhaps proper sense of time constraint and so forth, although it was very, it's very valuable. But um, that other book, Waves of Devotion, is pretty good at kind of breaking it down and, and uh, explaining it. So that, that's a reasonable book. I haven't read the book, but I've looked at it. We need a full edition of Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu someday. We'll see if, if it happens. Somebody can, with a commentary, bring that out. I'd love to do that, but it's a big project. So that's an important book. These are the import, most important books. Chaitanya Charitamrita, Srimad Bhagavatam, Bhagavad Gita, and Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu. Those are the most important books. And in Chaitanya Charitamrita, you find them all. You know, the first time I read Chaitanya Charitamrita, I thought, oh, Bhagavad Gita is here, Bhagavatam is here, Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu is here, everything is here in one one book. Because, after all, Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu is written by Rupa Goswami, and he, he was instructed what to write there by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And, of course, Bhagavatam is the main book, and practically every point that he makes in Chaitanya Charitamrita is supported by Bhagavatam, so he cites verses which are important verses from the, from the Bhagavatam to know. So it's very helpful to read that. And uh, so you can you can find the Gaudiya texts from the Gita, which are few, but there are some there, in Chaitanya Charitamrita, and how they're used. See, that's all very interesting when you study. You read, and you, like I said, you, you see, oh, he quotes the Gita here, and you see a unique, unique way in which he's using it and applying it. Really open your mind a little bit to the, you know, sometimes the devotees tend to look at the books in a very black and white way. Prophet called them like law books. So some devotees have a very like, it's the law, it's written in stone, kind of, there's only one way to understand it. But if you play the analogy out of law books, you'll see that they're quite um, flexible. Law books are being kind of rewritten all the time as the law has to be applied to a unique circumstance, then the two lawyers will cite the law. The law says this, the law says that. Therefore, I think that the, the verdict should be guilty or not guilty. And, and uh, new insights always come out. And so it's actually quite a living 
thing, living body of revelation, and it's ongoing. And so it's good when you read it like this, as I say, and you see, oh, he's using this Gita verse of Chaitanya Charitamrita like this, and then you go and look at the context in the Gita, and you see how he did that, and it gives you a different understanding, perhaps, than you might have had, or a uh, more comprehensive and living understanding than you had previously just reading it in the Gita. So this kind of cross-referencing, again, I'm emphasizing, is very useful. And um, then, with regards to some of the things that you read that are hard to accept, um, I'm not sure exactly what you're referring to. You could be referring to things that Prabhupada says in places that are that are more cultural and and they uh, represent the cultural filter through which he's presenting Krishna consciousness. Some of those things can be a little shocking, given our culture. They seem very uh, conservative, or at best, sometimes. Of course, you should understand that Prabhupada was really a flaming liberal and progressive. If you look at him in in the context of Bengal society, Calcutta, and so forth, he was way out there, so to speak. But from, from our point of view, you know, in this century and so forth, it's uh, in this country and the Western world and so forth, then he will look very conservative or out of date in some, some places. So you have to see that and understand how divinity descends through a particular person and it's going to have a particular cultural filter and, and you have to be able to sort that out a little bit. Prabhupada's writings are very Gandhian in many respects in terms of his world view about how to live in the world. A lot of it, is, which is good, is emphasis in the first canon about self-sufficiency and these kind of things. And then again, you know, his way of speaking about women and, and all is, is not very progressive and up-to-date, but it represents how everybody in the world thought, in those th- even in America, at uh, the time of his upbringing and so forth. And uh, the devotees look at it some as been like really like right out of Goloka, Vedic. But everybody in the world thought like that. Women couldn't vote, you know. So at one point they thought women didn't have souls even. So again, I mentioned this kind of the other day when I said that you can meet a sadhu in India who has the wildest notions about what it's like in America or or Finland because he heard from this person or that person. And, and he could be a, a very advanced devotee, but he has got certain information about a place that he's never been, and so he thinks that's what it must be like. Like somebody told uh, him, all the women in America, or all the blondes are prostitutes, or something like that. Is that is he Somebody told him, okay, that's what he thinks. <laughs> must be a terrible place. <laughs> and so now you'll think, well, what could he know? How could he be enlightened? But it doesn't work like that. Know means to know what the modes of, of the world means to know what the modes of nature are and not be under their influence. To know everything means not to forget Krishna. One time, in fact, a man asked Prabhupada and said, So, do you know everything? He said, Yes. <laughs> and the man said, How many windows are there in the Empire State Building? Which is a big you know, building in New York City. And Prabhupada very quickly responded. He said something like, uh, like immediately, he said, as many as there are drops of water 
in an illusion of water, like when you drive on the highway and it looks like there's water because it's so hot. That's how he responded. So, uh, (laughs) he doesn't have to know all the details to know what the material world is and everything about it. To transcend it means you've understood everything without going into the details. So, some of those statements like that, you know, you have to look at like that. And you have to kind of try to feel Prabhupada's heart, too. I mean, we, some of us, I mean, I knew him personally and so forth, so I know what he was like. You can, you can read him separately from that and some of the things he said and think, wow, he was pretty heavy, or that's a heavy thing to say and so forth. But he was very, very extremely uh, soft-hearted and flexible and, um, and, um, respectful to to everyone and every everything. So you take take my word for that. He's your he's your grandfather. <laughs> He'll be very merciful to you. So look at the cultural statements like that. Then there are other things that may be hard to believe too, are like things about um in Leela, so many arms and so many heads and and those may be hard to believe or some of the things that take place there but but uh, in order to really appreciate that, you have to gradually become familiar with the philosophical underpinning that the whole thing arises out of. Then it makes perfect sense. All such things are possible. It takes some time, but a lot of times I've explained in a simple way that life really moves progressively by giving. Give to live. We live in the material world in the very opposite way. Because we've identified with the body, the body has needs, so we think we have needs and we have to take. And there's only so much to take, and so we're in competition with one another and so forth. And we're, in order to live, we have to kill, we have to exploit. That's what the world realm of karma is about. It's all about exploitation. The realm of gyan is about not exploiting, but not giving. Not taking, but not giving. Even though the problem with it is you should know to give by then. <laughs> but anyway, the bhakti realm is about giving. So it comes full circle. And so that's mysterious because when we give, we get, but we can't hold up what we get and show it to everybody and say, see, look what I've got. But we do, we become whole. By giving of ourselves. we actually become whole. So it's quite mystical. So as much as that experience of becoming whole. And we get it no matter how we give, even if we give imperfectly. Perfect giving requires Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam, knowing who is the perfect taker, the complete taker, because then you can completely give. You can give to someone, but if they don't have the capacity to take or to something, then your capacity to give will be limited, even if you want to give unlimitedly. So to know the center, this is Krishna, this is the kind of some of the philosophy behind is uh, identifying that center where the complete taker, the complete enjoyer. If you have that and willingness to give in the sense that by giving you live, then then you can make your life perfect. But without knowing that and giving thereby imperfectly, either because, you see, knowing Krishna also gives the impetus for full giving. This is what he says in the Gita. Even you're a big philanthropist and so forth, they, they want to give. But the polite, 
of people in the world isn't sufficient impetus to give completely. Because that kind of compassionate giving is only one kind of giving. It's giving to people who are in a, in a lesser condition than myself. Animals, plants, people, hungry people, sick people, and so forth. Showing compassion is not the full measure of love. Between Bhakti Rasa, then Krishna's are not in need, right? You can have karunya, empathy, rasa with Krishna, but in Vatsalya Rasa he's somewhat in need. In all the rasas he can be in need to some extent, but ultimately he's not in need. So how to show love to someone who's not in need? The philanthropist and, and is helping those in need. You understand? It's only one side of love. So, without really understanding Krishna, this concept, this idea, this uh, finding the real center, you don't have the impetus to give fully. It's not you're not fully to give. Someone has to be drawing on you to give also. So Krishna draws it all. He wants it all. He wants everything, and it's justifiable. If you understand it, oh, it's justifiable. It should all go here. Just like it should all go the food to the stomach. There it will be distributed. Everyone will benefit mystically. You put it in one place, in one form, and then mystically, in another form, it shows up everywhere. This is our practical, you know, everyday experience. We don't think about it like that, but it's quite mystical, fascinating. I mean, if you didn't have the experience... And I was to bring you a mango seed. Well, mangoes don't grow here, but apples grow here, right? So I bring you an apple seed, and I tell you, there there are a hundred or a thousand, who knows how many, say a thousand apple trees with millions of apples inside the seed. It makes no sense, right? If you didn't have the experience. But it's true, isn't it? Inside the one seed, there. Well, there's one tree, I guess. So there's so many trees. Yeah, there's a tree, and then all those apples, and then we'll have seeds, and then we'll have trees and apples, and so everything inside one seed. This is mystical, but we're accustomed to it. We're familiar with it, so we don't we don't think of the the power, the mystery, the achintya shakti of the whole affair. Then we hear things about, for example, Krishna Leela, and we don't have experience of them. So it sounds a little odd. It's beyond our experience. How is it possible? And, and so forth. But the only reason that we believe readily so many things is because we have some experience of them. The Bhagavatam is meant to, give us, to take us beyond our three-dimensional realm of uh, range of uh, experience, sensual, mental, intellectual experience. What possibilities lie in the soul? I mean, just look at it. What possibility lies in the mind compared to the physical plane? It's a huge difference. I think I gave the example the other day. You couldn't take everything in this room with you physically in one one try, but mentally it would be possible. You could memorize everything and, and take it with you. At least you'd have greater capacity. Mind is far more vast. Intellect more vast. What is speak of the soul? What are the possibilities of the soul? So, you have to have that kind of philosophical training, background, and understanding to appreciate the Leela. Giving, as I said, you can't explain the experience of giving, the wholeness that comes from giving up 
something. You can't really put it into words. And this is this is also our everyday experience. So what to speak then of explaining the full experience of absolute giving, which the gopis and the inhabitants of Vrindavan exemplify. That's the whole idea. They exemplify absolute full giving. And the fact that it, that manifests in the form of the Leela, and the Goswamis are only saying something about the Leela, trying to put it in words, trying to explain it. It's beyond words. So you have to kind of think a little philosophically when thoughts come up, like, how could that be? And you have to think, even the Goswamis, they said, oh, so I know this is hard to believe, but Krishna has a chintya shakti, so... We have to think of inconceivable potency. And that's a powerful, simple as that may sound, it's a powerful, that's a pillar of our philosophy. God can do anything. I mean, look at all that he's done. It's all pretty fascinating and mystical. And <laughs> but we're just, there's a particular aspect of it, the ekpadvibhuti, the material existence, and some aspect of that even only that we're familiar with. And we're so... Uh, foolish sometimes to think that everything has to fit into that reference. Even materially speaking, life becomes very mystical when you get into like subatomic particles and things. It's, is it a wave? Is it a particle? It's a wave. No, it's a particle. It's that kind of thing. And consciousness, then what about that? Consciousness, even they, they start to say it in science, it changes matter. It changes it, right? Isn't that what they say? The experimenter changes the experiment. Another person does the experiment. It has a different experience. So, even if you study... I'm not a scientist at all. It was my worst subject. (laughs) But um, I've learned a few things in in the context of preaching because you have to pick up a little bit here and there. But even if you study carefully, like science, materially speaking then you, everything becomes so flexible. It's ironic because common people have this really like hard and fast understanding of what the world's like, what science is. But if you really look at it, everything becomes nebulous. And what are forms? Are there any really forms? Are these things as tangible as, as they appear? They're you know, colors, what are colors? And, there's a museum in San Francisco. Sometimes we should, we should go. I never went, but one devotee went, told me about it. They have all these. Um, maybe you've gone there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you look at it and tell us about it. Well, it's, it has all these kind of exhibits that that uh, many of them are, are meant to show how the the senses will will trick you. Mm-hmm. That there's there's some basic kind of, premise of the yeah. Bhagavad philosophy. Like, like, there's this one picture of, of a face, and when you look at it, it just looks like a. There's something strange in that face, but you can't really pinpoint it. It's a face, but there's something like, slightly odd. But then, when you look at it closer, you'll notice that the mouth is the wrong way, and the eyes are like all messed up. And, but, but at first glance, it just looks, almost normal, because the eye can't can't like take in the, some, something with like like different information coming at the same time mm-hmm. and then some pictures for example of, of forms that look like they are moving 
a picture picture with with circles and when you look at those circles it looks like the circles are revolving mm -hmm. but just that's just because of different colors and mm -hmm. and, uh, and boxes that look like they are like with lines that look like they are going going like this even though they're actually perpendicular mm -hmm. like, all kinds of exhibits like yeah. that yeah yeah so it shows a basic tenet of the of the Bhagavad philosophy, the senses are imperfect. So uh, a closer look even at material nature makes one a little unsure and open to so many possibilities. So we should take that into consideration when reading about Krishna Leela. And then again, we're familiar a little bit with the Maya Shakti, but Krishna Leela is governed by the Sarup Shakti. So it's a whole different energy. I wrote an interesting article about the Kurukshetra War once. What was it called? I think it was called... Um, Violence in the Bhagavad Gita? Yeah, Violence in the Bhagavad Gita, something like that. That would be worth reading. I kind of addressed like that. Like this, for example, 18 days, 640 million people died in a certain area. And People say, well, where are the, all the bones and everything? So I kind of explain it. So that's important, that kind of thing, so that you can kind of harmonize your heart, your faith, and your head. But really, as I often say, we have to use our head to soften our heart and be careful that our head doesn't harden our heart. So if something's too hard to accept or believe or whatever, then just keep reading and write me a question, and then I'll help you to how to think about it. But in all of that, we should be clear that that's why it's important to really understand the, the basics of the of Vedanta and Bhakti, because they're just un things you just cannot avoid, you just cannot get away from. You may find something unbelievable, hard to accept, and so forth, but you cannot deny the fact that... I mean, so what's the conclusion? Therefore, you should go and just... Be a sense gratifier? Does that make any sense? That makes no sense. You understand? This is like a basic tenant. And you can practically experience that. That if you just go and just whatever, just party or something, or, you know, just, just, um, interact with sense objects without any restriction, you're going to end up really, bleh, feeling very, you know, unfulfilled. And if you, on the other hand, learn to control your senses and your mind, you're going to feel a lot happier about life, a lot better. It's very practical. The theory of it is very, very profound and compelling. And then you can get practical experience of it as well. So you can't get away from that. And then you have to think. And that's the way to really understanding all these, these topics. That's the way to go there. It's on a different plane. And this is very central, very basic to getting there. Yeah? You have to go beyond the mind and you have to go beyond the senses. And so this is yoga. So if you find something hard to believe or something like that, then you have to draw back to the basics that are very believable and very difficult. You'd have to be hypocritical entirely and deny things that you know to be true to to move away from that. So you stay then in the ballpark always of, of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. And then, well, another fellow once asked me, a godbrother of mine, he said, Maharaj, you know, I've been doing this for 30 years, and he said, you know, 
I have a question for you. I said, well, what is the question? He said, I know I'm eternal. I know that. I've experienced that, he said. So he, what he meant was that, you know, there were times when his senses were controlled and his mind was stilled and he experienced like a, a boss, Nama boss, something like that. that and uh, I know the man, I trained him up, so I know he had some experience. Anyway, he said, but now my question after all these years too is, I know that I'm eternal, but how do I know that Krishna is real? So he, in his word, he was said, I had some experience of this, one thing, limited, and I come back to time and space and so forth. And um, But I've had that experience, so I, I can accept it, but, but I haven't had the experience of Krishna, really. And... Uh, Anyway, I said to him very simply, I said, well, how do you know that you're eternal? How did you find out? By worshipping Krishna. So, how can Krishna <laughs> not be? Then? How can he be false? <laughs> it was pretty simple logic. He liked that. <laughs> so, my point here then is that there are higher topics and so forth. And, uh, and they'll be understood experience in time if you can't understand them entirely because you don't have experience and they're a little bit of a stretch don't let that get in your way of practicing and sometimes you know you try to harmonize your heart with your head and some thought some some part of the philosophy or or what some other sect of Gaudiya people says and looks at it and they say you're not bona fide for this you need to think about that and put that all together and on a low level it may happen on a high level that may happen and so forth so sometimes you can't really answer everything so then you just go and continue to practice and and, and let that bothers you for a while but it'll it'll calm down just give it some time the mind will always calm down if you just distance yourself from it emotions feelings and so forth and it just always when you get strong feelings like if you get strong feelings for a young man Step back for a minute, you know. Think about it. <laughs> it's not everything. <laughs> it'll go away and it'll come, you know, settle down to what it really is and, and so forth. So sometimes you just have to step back from things a little bit and then approach them later on. But don't let anything get in your way. And you can always ask me. I'll usually have a pretty good answer. So because I've thought about it all. <laughs> so, so have a real, you know, be grounded in, in essentials of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, and then you'll be successful because they will reveal, if you put them in place and practice, everything. They will make sense out of everything for you in time because they will take you beyond the, the necessity even for things to make sense. That's, uh, you know, intellectual uh, addiction, conditioning of the intellect. It has to make sense. So we're not a slave to our intellect. Soul is not, have to answer to intellect. Why should it? What to speak of Krishna? Does he have to answer to your intellect? No. Soul, consciousness is superior to intellect. It's unbecoming. They have to answer and if you try too much, this other side, if you try too much to understand with your intellect, then it will become problematic. Because that's not the medium by which to go there. So if you try to go there by that medium, you'll be repelled. They'll throw you down. Sarup Shakti will say, we're not interested in that. 
can't come here with that. You can use that to help you. You can use your head, soften your heart, and and so forth. But if you just want to come with your head, there's no place for that. You have to come with your heart, to come through faith. So, in that way, we use our intelligence to study the books carefully. But at the same time, know that these books, whoever wrote them, Krishna spoke the Bhagavad Gita. What could be more clear? Still, it's not clear. The very nature of the subject is you can't say enough about it, ever. Maybe he did say everything about it, but then to understand everything that he said, that takes forever, and that's unlimited. The subject matter is beyond words, beyond mind. If you go to that land beyond mind, intellect, words can't express, do justice to, and then come back to the realm of words and thought and so forth, and try to explain it, then really, what really makes that explanation valuable, more than the explanation itself, is the experience behind it that drives the person to try to talk about it, and his, his or her inability to do so, which makes him keep talking and talking and talking, to do justice to it. That is compelling, more than the argument which it seeks to try to address our reasoning in which we're trying to make everything fit, through which we're trying to make sense out of everything, and so forth. We're led by our logic, by our reasoning, but we have to learn to be led by our heart. This is a strong point of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. Ultimately, it is, we were interested in what's called, we call it Gyanshunya Bhakti, devotion unencumbered by the need to know, understand. That's what Vrindavan Leela is about. So in one sense, we're a little anti-intellectual, Bhakti Siddhanta Sarsati Thakur was very much emphasized, and my Guru Maharaj also, to get people engaged in Krishna consciousness more than intellectualizing about it. And even certain books, I said, don't bother to read them. And they are Goswami Granta's books by the Goswamis. And some people say, I think your Guru doesn't let you read that. How does he? Wow, why, why are you going to ever understand Krishna consciousness? They don't understand Krishna consciousness to make that kind of a, ask that kind of a question. It can be understood without any book. The book is all telling you to do something, not, and that's not to think about Krishna consciousness, but to, to be Krishna conscious, to put those things in, in place. Still, you know, we, we are living in a modern world, and um, we're not living in rural India and just chant and be happy. You have to deal with so many doubts and questions and the way the world is going is in a very different way and so forth. So you have to have, I think, um, ways of, of thinking about the tradition and the philosophy and so forth that makes sense in our times and that, that it works for your intellect to a point. But if I find that you just want to gratify your intellect, then I'll stop talking to you. I'm not being a servant of your intellect only. If you want to know so that you can make progress and so forth, and you can understand that the intellect is is as much of a problem as it is a help, then we'll we'll try to deal with that problem. So does that help? That's how you should read and deal with those kind of things that are unbelievable. And one more question. Uh, how important, Kumaraj, is it for us when we study to to learn verses by heart? Well. Um, the verses have power. They're composed by 
vyas or spoken by Krishna or great devotees, prayers, and so they have a, some inherent power in them. So if you learn them and repeat them, you're going to get some power besides understanding the meaning. You can, you can it can help you. So it's useful um, in that sense, and it's also useful for preaching if you know the words and and so forth, you can put them together in interesting ways and speak that much better, explain the meaning and so forth. And uh, you have to consider that, you know, in any, in any uh, language is part of uh, a culture and a whole way of thinking and so forth. So to get into the mind of the people who spoke about Krishna consciousness in Bengali or in Sanskrit... Knowing something about the language can be helpful. It's not essential by any means, but it can be helpful. So, especially if you get a chance to learn Bengali, it's it's very worthwhile. It's such a beautiful language, so much fun. And uh, romantic language, it's kind of like Latin language of India or something like that. It's very beautiful. It sounds and so... I, I don't want to say it's not important, but I don't want to uh, burden persons who don't have an aptitude for that to think that they have to learn Sanskrit or Bengali or memorize verses. It's not necessary. But for those who have some aptitude in that, interest in that, then they can drive power from that, both personally and also in terms of preaching. If you're going to preach, then you have to have some knowledge. You have to have knowledge of the books and... And to be able to cite verses is good. Now, I used to learn many verses. I remember the f- first verse I learned was from Bhagavad Gita, Tesham Satata Yuktanam Bhajatam Pritipubhakam. It's the famous verse of the Gita. Such power in the verse. I thought, wow, there's power in this, saying this. So, so then I started to learn verses. And so on. now I forget so many of them. I used to know so many, but I forget them. So, that's my answer. If you speak and and you are you're a speaker about Krishna consciousness and a writer and so forth, so in speaking it it brings some um, regard. It will help to get people to pay attention. I think yeah. they think, oh, he knows something like this, citing that verse. And so, uh, must be important, and so it it fosters respect. And if the you know if you're representing Krishna, then sometimes. You have to do things like that to get people to listen and pay attention. That's why Mahaprabhu took sannyas, to get people to listen and pay attention. So it's useful.